You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's, uh, it's a winter wonderland out there. It's delightful, really. First sustained snow of the season outside here in the, uh, the Co-Main Event Podcast headquarters in Missoula, Montana. Really gives you an appreciation for being some kind of bullshit internet writer who gets to sit at home and watch it out his window, doesn't it? Just stare lazily out the back window. Feeling sorry for everybody who has to actually leave their home to go to work. Just the deer frolicking in your actually, backyard. The deer, the deer in my neighborhood look pretty pissed off this time of year. Yeah. If, as a deer, you could see yourself forgetting that this happens every year, right? <laughs> or you could see yourself just assuming you won't live to see another one and being, you know, Kind of accurate. Ben, I heard you scored a hockey goal. That's right. My first goal. You know, they give you the puck to take home with you when you score your first goal. Is that true? Uh, apparently. They gave and me the puck. Puck's got to run five, seven, upwards of $8, I would think. I think they're actually less than that. Uh, but uh, yeah, free puck. We still lost two to one, but uh, Whoa, I scored the one. The one goal was you. That's Can right. Can you give us a play-by-play here about what happened? Uh, you know, I just took it the length of the ice. Yeah, I don't care. Deeked out the entire other team. Or... Another possible thing that might have happened is I just stood in front of the net and waited for the puck to drift my way and then closed my eyes and hit it as hard as I could. And lo and behold, it ended up in the back of the net. That's that's how the greats do it, I've heard. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to level with you here. My interest in hearing stories about your involvement in hockey uh, high starts and ends with Sky the high. humiliation factor. Okay. I'm not necessarily interested in hearing tales of your glory. I would like to to focus more on uh, athletic comeuppance and uh, you know blunder. I guess you could say. So like, how many blunders did you make? So like last week when I was trying to get off the ice and onto the bench and I slipped and fell. <laughs> yes, that'd be your like your wheelhouse. Killer story. Although, man, at this point, I'm just saying I learned to ice skate like three weeks ago. Already scored a goal. See, that's I'm not. I at, don't care about that. At I'm this not, rate, this I'm going to be the greatest hockey player nope. ever in like eight months. I want more like you flipping over the boards. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll work less, on that for you. I'll try to collect more of those less tidbits. goal scoring. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Fulton and Rourke is a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the way guys get ready. This week, Fulton and Rourke rolls out its holiday gift set, perfect for the man in your life who believes if you look better and you smell better, well, hell, you might just be better too. Ben, tell the people what they get in the gift set. They get it all, Chad. We're talking about a whole new world of grooming and hygiene. Are you... Or do you mean specifically? Yeah, specifically. Okay, well, check this out. In the Fulton and Rourke Holiday Gift Set, it includes their 100% American-made DOP kit, a full-size tube of the award-winning shave cream, the skin-balancing face wash, a half-pound brick of F&R bar soap, and 10 cooling aftershave cloths. Now, how much do you think someone would pay for that? I, I don't know. Like $30,000? Well, you're, you're an idiot because no one would pay that much, but what if I told you that if you bought... All those items separately, they would be worth nearly $150. And what if I told you 
that right now, for a limited time only, Fulton and Rourke are selling it for $99 flat for the holidays. Does that sound like something you'd be interested in, Chad? I'd say it's a bargain at any price. Check out the holiday gift set with your own two eyes at FultonandRourke.com. That's Fulton and R-O-A-R-K.com. We got music again this week from our friend, the producer, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for providing this week's music in between rounds. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, and SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, how many of these proof-of-purchase certificates for UFC hot dog branders do I need to collect before I get me one of those featherweight belts? And in round number two, I take back everything I said about Derek Brunson. And in round number three, say, kids, would you like to see the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world fight literally just some dude? You are in luck. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Now, I tried to get Sir Nigel on this week. I, in, in our pre-production email thread this week, I emailed you, said we should get Sir Nigel if he was available. And you kind of cryptically emailed me back that he was just, quote, unavailable. Unavailable this has, week. Has some kind of tragedy befallen the world's leading theatricalist? or um, I believe that he is sick. Although it's unclear to me, especially coming off the Thanksgiving break where, you know, Sir Nigel, he does a little bit of traveling over Thanksgiving. He does the thing usually, I think, where instead of going to be with family for Thanksgiving, he goes with a bunch of friends that are all trying to avoid family. And so it's unclear if he is sick, like with an actual illness that people contract through no fault of their own, or if he is sick by his own making. Uh, Brown bottle flu. That's what you're talking about. Unclear. First question this week comes to us from Mike. Get well, by the way. Sir Nigel Longstock. Mike get well? No, I was I interrupted my thought to 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 circle back to wish <laughs> to, Sir Nigel Longstock to, to you know kind of offhand yeah. consider his health. Well, if he's listening to this, I don't want him to think we're just we just callously talked about his hangover and then moved on. No. We talked about his hangover, briefly and then, mentioned it, and then, then moved, moved on, on and then yeah. circled back. First question this week comes to us from Michael Hutchinson. He writes, hey, guys, it's my favorite time of the year. Every year, a guy gets injured, ruining an event, and I get to discuss injury rates of major MMA fight camps. Last year, I talked to Ben about how Team Alpha Male's injury rate is super low, and this year, the updated numbers show that AKA has the highest injury rate. Daniel Cormier was removed from UFC 206, and Luke Rockhold was removed from the Australia card that took place this past weekend. What are your thoughts on AKA's injury numbers, and will the UFC second-guess putting AKA fighters in top fights? Now, Michael Hutcherson also includes a link uh, to a uh, bloody elbow story that includes the injury rates of MMA fight camps. You know what's kind of crazy about that chart that he has in this? Is, you know, it shows the number of scheduled fights uh, for each camp and then the number of injuries, uh, and then the percentage that that works out to and AKA is at the top with 141 scheduled fights, 26 injuries, uh, and 18.43% like withdrawal rate. And you look at like Jackson Winklejohn, 348 scheduled fights and only two more injury withdrawals, only 28 injury withdrawals. Yeah, that is, that's eye popping. That's for an only 8%, roughly 8% uh, injury rate. Well, and they just have way more scheduled fights than anybody else on the list, and their injury rate is, is pretty damn good. Yeah, they're, what, uh, fourth from the bottom there. I don't know, but maybe if you start to factor in, like, the rate from dudes who 
had some kind of vehicular related withdrawal, uh, uh, dick pill related withdrawal. Maybe then the rate goes up. So are we talking? Are we still talking about Sir Nigel Longstock here? <laughs> we we were, we always could be, I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess again we have to talk about this question about is AKA out there hitting each other with sledgehammers and forgetting that you're supposed to be hitting a big-ass tire. Right. What are they doing over there? It's topical right now, as we just had Cormier pulled out of his rematch with Anthony Johnson uh, at UFC 206, which was supposed to take place in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and the trickle-down from that has obviously been substantive, uh, and we will talk about that, I think, in depth during our discussion during round number one. Uh, but yeah, this does seem to uh, afflict AKA uh, at a, a, a higher clip than... Uh, than any other fight camp. I see they're about 2% higher than uh, Nova Uniao, which is number two on this uh, Michael Hutchinson chart about the uh, the rate by, with which fighters pull out. Uh, and you know, we, as he mentions in his email, we just had Luke Rockhold also uh, pull out of this Australia card. So um, it's at the forefront of our thoughts right now. And I think that, like, as you said... Like the stereotype that we would apply to AKA is a bunch of dudes embracing the grind, going hard in the wrestling room and everybody getting hurt. Right. And I don't know if that is necessarily, uh, account. I don't know if that accounts for all of these injuries, but the numbers tell us that something happening down there, uh, maybe isn't working. Well, yeah. And there are other factors to consider. And this chart takes into account some of them, like the average age, uh, which, for AKA is 34.8, uh, which is, I believe, just looking at this list, the, the highest average age on there. There could be a corollary there. Uh, also, the I guess this would is average weight. It's 186, which is like the second highest on there. So maybe so that you, has something to do with it, you're too. You're dealing with old, ass old wrestlers. big guys, is what you're telling me. Well, and, you know, I know when this was a topic before... And, you know, I remember talking to Michael Hutchison about this before, and I did a story on it, and I talked to guys from AKA, and I also talked to guys from Team Alpha Male to kind of figure out both ends of the spectrum, what do they think is going on. And one of the things that Javier Mendez from AKA said was, you know, he, he allowed that it seemed like they did get injured too often, and that they wanted to look at that. And he blamed it a lot on wrestling practice, just said that that was a way more common way for guys to get hurt, and I, I can believe that. But also said that sometimes those numbers don't tell you everything about how people are training because some of these injuries, it was a guy got injured in his last fight and never quite got over it and tried to get back into training camp. And it was the injury that he sustained, uh, you know, the last time he was actually in the fight that came back and, and bothered him and caused him to pull out. So, you know, it is, you know, it's a violent damn sport. So there are lots of ways to get injured out there. Yeah, and I think as we talk about every time this comes up, this sort of like umbrella topic of injuries in mixed martial arts, we also point out that this is a very young sport. It feels like people are still very much figuring out how to properly train for it, and maybe no one has the perfect magic bullet uh, for how to prepare yourself to fight for 25 minutes in some cases uh, at a uh, you know an almost unlimited pace. Uh, and at the same time, stay healthy all the way through training camp. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a really weird double-edged sword. And, and one of the things that it always brings to mind to me is like how we as a fan base and as viewers react to people having shitty fights and how, uh, you know, guys quote unquote, not being in shape to go the distance in a 15 minute or a 25 minute fight, uh, gets them roundly mocked. 
and uh that can only increase the pressure i guess you would say on the like the 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 physical pressure you would put on your body it's almost like we ask these men and women to do impossible stuff and then we also get mad at them when it turns out their bodies can't really do it uh so to me it's like i think it's all connected uh i think all of the stuff we said about ak's aka's size and age and uh, how they do practice, and also the pressure that that we put on people to perform in this sport is all connected. Uh, and I don't have an answer for like how that gets better exactly. Yeah, I also think one thing to consider is a rate. If you look at the rate of guys who have withdrawn from fights, that does not tell you the guys who have been injured in training. Sure. Uh, and especially if you have like a gym like uh, Jackson Winklejohn, which has just a ton of fighters. And a lot of guys in the UFC, and not all of them are the you know total high-level guys. There's guys kind of at all levels coming out of there. And a lot of those guys, they might get hurt and might still fight. You know, it's not necessarily that they're the, the training is all that safer that you, from what you can tell just by looking at those numbers. Some of them just might financially or because where they are in their career don't feel like they can afford to pull out of a fight. Right. Whereas with AKA, you know, you can name three guys off the top of your head that are all kind of right at that elite level where they're making good enough money that they don't have to, you know, it's not a keeping the lights on kind of thing to go out there and fight if you're injured. And there might be a lot more for them to lose fighting hurt than there is for them to gain. You know, guys like Lou Rockhold, Daniel Cormier, Cain Velasquez, um, you know, who have all pulled out of fights in kind of high profile situations. They're all at that level where if you go in there injured and you fight anyway, you might be taking a, a huge risk. So what you're telling me is that the the guys over at Alliance MMA, who are the are statistically speaking, according to this chart, pull out of fights with injuries the fewest uh, or the least, uh, and have roughly the same average age as the AKA Alliances is 32.5. Roughly, you know, not exactly the same weight, but Alliance's average weight is 173. AKA's average weight, as you said, is 186. You're telling me that the guys at Alliance just have more credit card debt. They they got to they got to make that money, or you know, they are making little enough money from their UFC bouts and know that if they pull out injured from this one, it might be six months before they get another chance to get paid, and. Uh, you know, they don't have that Adidas money flowing in there. Yeah, they they, they got to get out there. They're yeah. not on Fox Sports 1 at the broadcast desk smoking and joking with, with Brian Stan and Michael Bisping. They need to fight to make money. They already got Thursday and Friday off from UPS so they can travel. <laughs> That's right. So they... and, that, and that was kind of a, a big ask, you know. Next question this week comes to us from Ross from Ohio. He writes, the UFC wants Kelvin Gastelum to fight Tim Kennedy mere weeks into Kelvin's six-month suspension. They are asking the Ontario Athletic Commission to not recognize the suspending authority of the New York Commission or the New York Commission to simply lift the penalty. I know that the NYSAC was a little suspension happy with fighters who missed weight, but does this move sound like a huge, that's in caps, huge conflict of interest? Please discuss. Seems to me that what they're, they're operating on the assumption that they'll be able to get that suspension lifted from New York, right? Not that they're asking Ontario to just ignore it. Because that would set a troubling precedent if you're the UFC to try to get one athletic commission to ignore a ruling of another one. That it's you know for all you can say about the UFC, that has not been typically the way they try to do business. Um, but it's true. Weren't we just saying on last week's podcast? Wasn't I in fact in my just saying stuff talking about the the whole Rashad Evans situation and how maybe 
we should wait until we know that a guy is cleared to fight before we book him into these fights so that we don't keep repeating this process over and over again. And then it seems like we're doing the opposite of that with this Kelvin Gastelum thing. You're just operating under the assumption that you'll be able to get this cleared up in time. Right. And it's like obviously such a uh, like a pairing of convenience, right? Because you assume that both Kelvin Gastelum and Tim Kennedy are in shape because Gastelum was supposed to fight uh, Donald Cerrone at UFC 205. And, and Tim Kennedy was supposed to fight Rashad Evans a couple of times now. And Evans just can't get medically cleared in, in, in order for that to happen. Uh, so, yeah, it seems both like a pairing of extreme convenience at the expense maybe of good sense and also like an extremely risky. Like it, it's it's weird to take Tim Kennedy, a dude who you know, for either rightly or wrongly, for better or worse, seems to have terrible luck with this kind of stuff to take him out of this like twice failed matchup against Rashad Evans and put him in against Kelvin Gatsalem, a guy who we know uh, from history doesn't always get there. Yeah, no, you can think of at least two or three reasons off the top of your head why Kelvin Gatsalem might not make it to fight night on this one. You know, some of them related to outside athletic commissions, some of them related to just his own tendencies. It, you know, it does seem like you're not exactly going with a safe bet here for Kennedy. Yeah, which, and if you're Tim Kennedy, are you like, well, what should I do? Just train, train like 85%? Like, what are the odds this thing happens? Well, fortunately, I get, maybe that is the good thing about a guy like Tim Kennedy is when it seems like he thinks he's really out of shape, he is just what in would what would be fantastic shape for a normal man. Yeah, phenomenal shape for a normal human. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's some of the thinking going on there. But it does, you know, the the whole it was weird the, all the stuff that the New York State Athletic Commission did. Um, and I wonder what was said to the fighters beforehand because from what I understood, they they suspended Kelvin Gastelum six months for not showing up to the weigh-ins. Like he basically knew he wasn't going to make weight and was like. Well, that's it. Sorry. Looked like, out the window and saw a Burger King across the street. <laughs> you know, that's we, where I would be. We've all been there. Uh, and I don't know. I would wonder, did they tell him like, hey, even if you're not going to make weight, you got to show up. Otherwise, you're going to be suspended. And they also suspended Tiago Alves for missing weight, which seems um, just unnecessary. There's already penalties enough, it seems, for missing weight that the suspension doesn't really do much. And then suspended UL Romero uh, for one of those like meaningless suspensions where you're probably not going to fight within that window anyway for jumping out of the cage. And I just... And I, goose stepping around the <laughs> octagon. Well, Let's not sell UL Romero short here. Okay. I, I know you were, just you were not Just jumping out of the that. cage, that's something a normal person might do. Uh, you know, but the goose stepping goes along with his whole soldier of dog thing. So, right, sure. But... I don't know. I just wonder, like, did these fighters know in advance, like here, the New York State Athletic Commission is going to do things wildly differently than everybody else. And here's what's going to happen, because otherwise, you know, the fighters kind of get used to a certain set of like penalties and, and punishments. Uh, and if that, that's not one of the things that they know is going to happen, then it seems unfair to just be throwing out these damn suspensions like that. It feels begrudging almost to me the way New York is handling the business of uh sanctioning MMA fights. Because we know, obviously, that New York was both the first and the last state in the union to to outlaw and then re-in-law. Sure. <laughs> sure. Why not? Right. Re-legalize uh, mixed martial arts. And some of the things that have happened since then, like we've seen some news about like the pr- promoter insurance fees being super high, which uh, 
in New York doesn't necessarily make mixed martial arts, I think, different from maybe any other industry that you want to be involved in. But uh, we've seen some stories about smaller promotions potentially getting priced out of New York with because of the huge insurance fees. And now we see this kind of like over officious streak on on behalf or on the part of the New York Athletic Commission. And like part of it to me just seems like there's like almost like they're still holding a grudge, which doesn't seem like it could be possible. But at the same time, it's like, OK, if we're going to have these fights here, we are just going to regulate the shit out of them. So like they no have, one is going to drink a jumbo soda. <laughs> they have to do it, but they don't have to like it. Is what you're yeah, saying? Maybe. Yeah. Like they're holding their nose for it. OK. Coastal elites. <laughs> their ivory towers. Blue bloods. Next uh, question this week comes to us from Kylan uh, Comalt. Oh, totally nailed that one. He writes, no offense to my boy Mighty Mouse or any of the other MMA news offerings, but can we get some tips for the well-rounded fight fan? I just finished Champion of the World. It was damn good. And I'm itching for some new shit. Sorry for my shitty sentence structure. You know, speaking of the holidays being around the corner, Ben. Oh, God damn it. If there are people out there that that have a, a, a man or a woman in their life that they feel like is, is hard to buy for, man, Champion of the World is out there, right? Available for order right now. And at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. You get it in hardcover, makes a great doorstop. Indeed. Yeah, bronze it, use it for a doorstop. That's yeah. Eighth grade math, math teacher Bill Cannon used to say. Do so, you have a tip for the well-rounded fight fan, Ben, that you would like to uh, pass out on this week's co-main event podcast? It's kind of a, a blast from the past. We haven't done this for a while. It yeah. used to be a semi-recurring uh, uh, segment on the show where we would... Uh, we would offer up a suggestion or some reading material or something to watch, not necessarily or, or perhaps not even related to fighting, but stuff that we thought that people who listen to the podcast might enjoy. We haven't done it for a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, and we've been criticized in the past for basically only recommending books uh, and nerd shit like that to people uh, on Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fans. So this time I would like to recommend a documentary film okay, I recently saw. Much different. Uh, no nerds need apply for this. Have you seen the seven five? Uh, I believe it's playing on a, like a loop on Showtime right about now. Documentary film about a, a dirty cop and kind of the uh, ring of corruption around him in the uh, 75th precinct of the New York police department in like the eighties and early nineties. No, but that sounds delightful. It is awesome. Is that available for streaming anywhere? Or is it just uh, playing on a, a premium channel that I think it's I, I think I saw it on Showtime, but I don't know. You might want to check and see if you can find it somewhere else. Um, but it is worth looking around to try to find it because it is not only is the subject matter fascinating. I mean, you tell me about like a corrupt cop uh, getting in bed with drug dealers and, you know, you already have my attention. But just as a documentary, it's just incredibly well done. Uh, really like the, the story is told really well. The, the interviews are really compelling. Uh, and it features, I'm going to say, one of the awesomest Dominican drug dealers uh, you'll ever see. And uh, on he, your top ten list of yeah. awesome oh, Dominican he's, drug he's dealers? top three awesome Dominican drug dealers, Adam Diaz, uh, especially at one point when he is talking about people who, ha who had wronged him in the past, and he refers to somebody, and they ask him about that guy, and he says, he's not around anymore. Oh, and okay. then just kind of looks into the camera. Uh, and then at one point he says, you know, I didn't kill him. And then they ask, well, how, what about this other guy who was his partner? And then he just looks into the camera and laughs. And you're like, well, I definitely think he killed one of these guys. <laughs> um, the 7-5. Wow. Check it out. It's like the, the numerals, the 7-5? Uh, it's just... all written out. The 7-word, 5-word. 
You know, that actually reminds me of another tip for the well-rounded fight fan that I could have. Uh, have you listened to the podcast the, called In the Dark? No. From American Public Media? Uh, it's super good. Uh, it's it's kind of like Serial. I feel like people who listened to Serial and enjoyed it would like In the Dark, but it's a little bit different. It's about like kind of a famous kidnapping case in uh, Minnesota, I believe, in the late 80s that kind of became a national phenomenon uh, and inspired, uh, you know, the, the way laws are structured uh, around both kidnapping cases and like sexual predator laws in the United States. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting show because even though it's serialized, uh, they tell you who did it like right at the beginning because is this uh, one that was recently solved? Yeah, it would like okay. it seemed like they solved it as they were making the podcast. Yeah, so very like recently. Right at the yeah. at the on the first episode, they tell you essentially the outcome of the case, and then the the podcast itself is is eight eight or nine episodes long, and it really turns into a uh, an investigation of like uh, local sheriff's departments and whether or not the national laws around these issues are working, or whether or not they're just like making things worse, uh, and really. Uh, in the way that like the wire at one point started out being a show about, you know, cops and drug dealers. And in the end was more of like a, an investigation of these, uh, uh, the structures of these agencies, like in the dark kind of does the same thing. It like turns out to be about a lot more than you think it's going to be about. And it's super interesting. That is not what I was going to recommend for tips for the well-rounded fight fan. But when I heard yours, it made me think of it. And so then you did the thing that you have accused me of doing, which is, on our podcast, recommending a better podcast, which seems kind of counterproductive for us. Yeah, I, I don't fear in the dark. I don't think that people oh, are going to Oh, you're saying you don't sweat in the dark? I don't, He's got I don't nothing think, on us? I don't think the people who listen, I don't think that we serve the same need. Let's okay. just say that. <laughs> All right. I don't think people that listen to it are going to forget about the co-main event podcast. The people who heard about it from us. Better not forget about the CME. Actually, what I was going to recommend is a book called Before the Fall by Noah Hawley, who's the guy who created the television show Fargo, which I've talked about on the show before. I believe it was maybe a tip for the well-rounded fight fan in the past. A great TV show. The book is also pretty awesome. Kind of long, but it's a really fast read. It's basically about a mysterious crash of a private jet and then... uh the the investigation into trying to figure out why the jet crashed is this fiction or nonfiction? it's fiction okay. but it, and it's written in a really straightforward like you can tell the guy who wrote it writes screenplays as you read it he's not fucking around no it's, it's like very direct does it, like as a writer to me it's impressive with how much he accomplishes in a very short number of words uh but it's also told from like a, a number of different point of view characters throughout the whole book and they're all really really well done so uh if you're looking for something to read out there, uh, Kylan Komalt. Not getting any better. I didn't get any closer. Uh, Before the Fall by Noah Hawley. The last name, I believe, is H-A-W-L-E-Y. Those are my tips for the well-rounded fight fan. Do you want to talk about this late-breaking news that we got, Ben? Uh, at, while you were driving over here on your way to my house to record the show, uh, MMAfighting.com's Mark Ramondi put out a report. The headline of which is George St. Pierre, Bjorn Rebney, and former UFC champs to make a MMA, quote, redefining announcement. Uh, on Wednesday, this conference call is scheduled featuring George St. Pierre, Cain Velasquez, TJ Dillashaw, Donald Cerrone, and Tim Kennedy, and Bellator MMA, former Bellator MMA promoter Bjorn Rebney, uh, to make some kind of huge announcement that we are not uh, privy to at this moment, although it's I think It's an announcement can... that there's going to be an announcement. 
I think we can guess uh, along the lines of what it's going to be. And it, uh, you know, at least has the potential to be big news. Although if it is what we think it is, it won't be the first time we've had a quote unquote industry redefining announcement along these lines. I'm guessing everybody's getting together for a surprise birthday party for Dana White. Yeah. Uh, advent calendars. Okay. Everyone is going to get secret advent Santa? calendars. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're drawing names. It's an for announcement the for the MMA bubble secret Santa. Huh. Okay. Uh, you know, I hear some of these names involved, Donald Cerrone, Tim Kennedy, guys like that. Uh, and, uh, George St. Pierre, especially I start thinking, here we go with yet another MMA fighters association. Uh, then I, I, mean, that's boy, what, I think that's what we're all guessing. I think that is the outlier for me is Bjorn Rebney. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the guy that when you look at this list, you might raise your eyebrows a little bit, not only because he's not a well-known fighter, not only because he's a guy that when he left Bellator, I don't think that there were a ton of real nice stories written about him on the way out the door. And he's also, you know, uh, not involved with the, with the UFC, which is obviously the largest MMA promoter in the world. But when we were talking about this before we went, before we started recording, I, I said, maybe it's a situation where if you are going to start a fighters union, you need to have like an executive type figurehead. Maybe you need a bald man. Yeah, you got to have a bald guy in a, in, a, uh, in a suit, a bespoke suit to do bald man shout times when the time is right. Yeah. And then it also allows Dana White the opportunity to look over this list, remove the chomped cigar from his teeth and utter Bjorn Rebney like a bad penny. He just keeps turning up. Now, as everyone who's listening to this probably knows, if this does indeed turn out to be the announcement of an MMA Fighters Association, it won't be the first. We're up to what? Three, maybe four? Three or four, yeah. Upwards of five uh, potential. Oh, I started one. I didn't, I didn't tell you? No, I forgot huh? to mention it. Yeah. No, it was just a little side thing I was doing. I, was, I kept meaning to bring it up, and I, it kept slipping my mind. But yeah, I started a professional fighter. Okay, great. So now we're, we're up to half dozen of these things. Uh, and to me, Ben, that's one of the issues here. Like, if you do get all of these MMA fighter associations off the ground, all of these quasi-fighter unions, uh, one of them is going to have to become the dominant force on that end of things pretty quickly. Uh, and the others are either going to have to be absorbed into it or, uh, you know, just kind of die off. Because if you are going to have a workable fighters union, your strength will be in the numbers. And I don't think you will have strength in numbers if there are seven counting yours. Yeah. Well, mine's going to be obviously very strong. Uh, I think that maybe what's going to happen if knowing the way fighters tend to work with stuff like this is that as soon as one starts to snowball a little bit and get some real names behind it, and, you know, George St. Pierre, Donald Cerrone, Cain Velasquez, those are some pretty good names to have associated with it, then even the ones who might have been down with a different one uh, in the past, it's not too hard to imagine a quick jumping of the ships until you have kind of a critical mass with one of them. And uh, one other interesting wrinkle in this story, as Raimondi points out in his story, uh, St. Pierre, Velasquez, Dillashaw, and Kennedy are all represented by the Creative Artists Agency, the CAA, uh, which is a talent agency, which is the chief rival to the new UFC owner, WMEIMG, which is kind of a, you know, a topic that's been on the outskirts of conversation since WMEIMG bought the UFC uh, about a potential conflict of interest and how they would work with these fighters who are represented by their main uh, rival in the, uh, you know, in the, uh, the fighter representation or in the talent agency. Or how would they would even work with fighters like Ronda Rousey, who they represent 
and then also they own the company. Right. So that's like a, a, there's an interesting layer to this story. Uh, also, just because these guys are, are all, with the exception of Cerrone, I guess, all represented by that uh, that rival organization. So that could be part of what we're dealing with here. We won't know until Wednesday when they have their conference call uh, scheduled for, what is it here, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time. What I want to know, uh, what do you figure the odds are Bjorn Rebney shows up in that same black suit? I think really good. Yeah. Really good. Although maybe he's going to change his gimmick. Maybe now all How about this? Suit? What about this? What if Bjorn Rebney shows up with a full head of hair <laughs> okay. and like a cream colored suit with wow. a bow tie? Wow. Just to be like, just to signal the new Bjorn Rebney is here. Yeah. Walking out looking as dazzling as a new dawn is what you're saying? Indeed. Yeah. So, you know what is good about that? Since this announcement is scheduled for Wednesday, you can probably read all about it in this week's Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss every day when we're not recording the podcast. At this point, we know stuff is going to happen later in the week that we're not going to be able to talk about. Uh, it's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. You can sign up for it by going to comainevent.com. Uh, and finding the the fields to fill in your name and email address, and then you will start getting that thing in your inbox every Friday morning. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Conor McGregor's historic run as the first UFC fighter to simultaneously hold championships in two different weight classes lasted all of 14 days. This past Saturday, uh, in kind of a surprising and low-profile spot, I thought, uh, the UFC announced during Fight Night 101 from Melbourne, Australia, uh, that Conor McGregor's not going to be the featherweight champion anymore. And I think we will discuss in a couple minutes whether or not he quote-unquote relinquished the title or whether or not it was taken from him and the ramifications of that. But as of this moment, uh, we are left to assume that if and when Conor McGregor returns to the octagon, he will soldier on with only his newly won lightweight title, which he took off Eddie Alvarez at UFC 205 a couple few weeks ago. Uh, like I said, Ben, I don't think that this was a surprise to a lot of people. I think we knew that something was going to have to give in the two titles situation with McGregor. Uh, and there was a lot of speculation about whether or not it was even in his future plans to return to the featherweight division. So I guess we will start here. Are you pro or con this move, taking away Conor McGregor's featherweight title in the manner that it was done, in the place that it was done, in the timing by which it was done? Well, those are two different questions, I think. Maybe even more than two different I'm questions. I'm here to ask the tough questions, man. I'm not here to pitch you softballs so you can stroke them out of the park like you're scoring goals in Corex uh, hockey. See, I mixed that metaphor there. Yeah. I'm not here to pitch you softballs. Like I'm scoring goals in hockey. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all that aside, am I in favor of stripping Conor McGregor of the title and then claiming that he relinquished it, which just does not does not sound like something that's true? Right. <laughs> I, you know, I can see that there 
that you might have had to do something with that featherweight title. That makes sense to me. It doesn't look like he was interested in defending it. Uh, he He's held it up for a while now. You're going to have to get on with that division eventually if he's not going to hold, if he's not going to put that belt on the line, then yeah, it makes sense to take it away from him. But you got to do it for the right reason. And I think that there were some good reasons. Like if you said, Hey, you know, we want, we have who we think Jose Aldo should fight next. It doesn't make sense for them to keep fighting over an interim featherweight title if the real champ is healthy, but is just choosing not to defend that belt. So we're going to take it away from him. Fine. That would make a lot of sense to me. But this makes no sense because basically what you're telling me is Daniel Cormier got hurt and then Conor McGregor got stripped of his title. And then what makes the least sense of all is you say, okay, Jose Aldo's interim title is now the real thing, which that makes sense. The interim is over. So now that that just becomes the real title, fine. So why would you create a new interim title? What's the interim now? There is no interim, Chad interims inside of interims <laughs> i don't think i think somebody else made this joke on on twitter but it's like the featherweight title is the new russian nesting dolls of the <laughs> ufc titles just one inside of the other uh i agree with you in that it seemed like conor mcgregor was not going to come back to featherweight and the only reason he even hung on to that 145 pound title as long as he did uh, was to use it as a bargaining chip and negotiations with the UFC and because becoming the two division champion, basically repeating the feat that he accomplished in cage warriors, uh, seemed like it was important to his personal vision quest. It's a good look. Uh, so he wanted to do that. So I'm not surprised and or, uh, you know, really against taking the featherweight title away from him. I will say though, the thing that gives me mixed feelings is, Maybe it seems like an obvious point to make about Conor McGregor, but I think it's one that is not necessarily articulated all the time. And that is that he managed to become the UFC's biggest star and pay-per-view draw while fighting in these lightweight classes, which is something we, we have not really seen before, uh, from a male fighter. You know, traditionally 145 pounds, uh, does not draw well with the pay-per-view buying public. Traditionally, 155 pounds is kind of a tough sell on pay-per-view, so much so that if you've been around this sport for a while, you remember that the UFC abandoned that division for a while. Uh, so for Conor McGregor to become this huge star fighting primarily at this point at the 145-pound weight class is another remarkable layer on top of all of the other remarkable things about Conor McGregor. So it gives me... It makes me feel a little bit sad for the featherweight division to see him stripped or and or relinquish the title because he really brought the only intrigue that that division has ever really enjoyed, uh, you know, by defeating Jose Aldo in 13 seconds and his entire two and a half year run up to that point. But if he wasn't going to do anything in that division, how long can you how long sure. can that intrigue continue to rub off from a distance? That's what I just said. Uh but to me, it, like, it's sad now to think that the featherweight division immediately regresses to being this thing that probably only hardcore fans will care about, uh, and won't, you know, have the big splash drawing power, won't be the hot division that it had been, uh, you know, during McGregor's rise. Uh, so to me, that, that is kind of a shame, but at the same time, if the dude isn't going to, he can't have the 145 pound champion who doesn't fight anymore at 145 yeah. pounds. Yeah. Well, and the thing that, annoys me so much about then creating a new interim title, uh, despite, you know, in addition to the fact that there is no interim, that, this, you know, the other 
the real champ. You've just decided that, you know, Jose Aldo is the genuine 145-pound champ, and he's fine. He can fight, so there's no... There's no time period that we're waiting out here, which is usually what the interim title is. But that it's just so transparent. Like, you clearly did this because you lost the title fight headliner from UFC 206 when Daniel Cormier got hurt. So you felt like, okay, it's got to have a title fight uh, for us to sell the pay-per-view because the lineup already has been kind of criticized for being weak or, or not as strong as it should have been for going into Toronto. So, you know, we'll just create a belt. We'll just drag one out of the, the supply closet. We'll slap it out there on the poster, and uh, then there we go. And so not only have you kind of further watered down your own championship belts, but it's just, it's futile. It's not going to work. Like, tell me, find for me the person, the MMA fan, who before looked at UFC 206 and was like, you know what, I'm going to keep the 60 bucks in my pocket on this one. I don't think this is worth it. But then they heard the words featherweight interim title and said, what? Interim, interim title. And couldn't get the credit card out fast enough. (laughs) Like that, there's nobody. You're not selling a single extra pay-per-view that way. You're not selling a single extra ticket. Anybody who knows enough to care about Max Holloway uh, and Anthony Pettis as your headliner knows that this is a bullshit thing that you're doing. The interim featherweight title is not adding any extra oomph to this fight card. All it's doing is kind of making you look like you you see your own belts as a marketing trinket. Yeah, and I think the decision to have a Holloway fight Pettis like exacerbates that. Uh, all of the other actual featherweights must be livid. I would think. I mean, we assume Frankie Edgar, who cruised into UFC 205 with some pre-existing injuries uh, for his his win over Jeremy Stevens, uh, probably wasn't ready to go. And so you have to kind of mix and match from there. But man, if I was Ricardo Lamas or Cub Swanson or even Jeremy Stevens, I would be like, you're having a who fight for the title? Yeah. The interim interim Yeah, he's won title? one featherweight fight. Yeah. And isn't he what, one in three in his last four fights? Something yeah. like that. So that makes it interesting. Uh, ben, did I miss this announcement that Jose Aldo was going to return to fighting? Because the last time we checked in with him, he was still kind of on the fence. Uh, Mistranslated. And and now suddenly that he is the actual champion again, uh, he is good to go. He wants to fight, what, in February or March and then hopes to have a rematch with McGregor. Uh, and he says... This quote to, uh, who wrote this story over on the MMA Junkie? Stephen Morocco uh, and Fernando Fernanda Pretas. Uh, he says, where's this quote? I think I've always been the champion, and I will always be the champion, says Jose Aldo, who the last time we heard from him was ready to leave his wrestling shoes on the mat and walk away. Nope, misunderstanding. Total just, it was a language barrier thing. You know Weird who, how it keeps happening to him, but uh, yeah, mistranslation apparently. You know who this this basically plays right into his hands? Connor fucking McGregor. <laughs> Can you imagine how insufferable he is going to be when he comes back talking about how he's still the featherweight champion and no one beat him in that weight class and whoever it is, Jose Aldo, is carrying around a toy belt, a replica belt of the belt that Conor McGregor won. Like, speaking of giving dudes slow-pitch softballs that they can then (laughs) whack into the back of the net on the hockey ice, you just gave Conor McGregor a whole new line of inquiry. You you basically pulled the goalie. Pursue. Yeah, just everybody get out of the way and let him have his best whack at it. And in fact... The potential is there for him now, I think, to sell a return to featherweight, which was not a thing that he was probably going to do before. 
Now, if he gets in a tight spot, shit, man, it's right there for him. Plus, you know there's no way he is going to stop walking around with two belts. Oh, God, no. Just because you told him. I would be surprised him. if he only has two. <laughs> I mean, he will just, he'll be covered head to toe in belts, and he will drive up to the arena in a car shaped like a belt. Like, you know, there's, if, if Chael Sonnen can walk around with a replica belt and claim it's the real thing, then man, Conor McGregor has way more right to start strutting around there, uh, with just a wheelbarrow full of UFC belts at this point, which I'm not going to lie and say I might not be into that gimmick. No, it's, I mean, like I said, you just, like, you just gave him a freebie, basically, for him to just continue being Conor McGregor. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Uh, is there anything else we wanted to talk about here as, as it pertains to this, uh, this fight booking UFC? Is that UFC 206? The, uh, that's right. Did we cover all of our bases? I guess we did. All right. Uh, do you want to do, uh, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, I know you were glued to the TV during the undercard of UFC fight night 101 you from Melbourne, Australia. I got nothing to do for six and a half hours. And I know you saw the kickoff to the sixth fight main card on FS1, uh, the women's straw weight bout between Danielle Taylor and Siohi Ham. Wouldn't miss it. Yeah. Um, now this one was marred by a couple of eye pokes. Couple eye pokes. Also, just it was one of those fights where they fell into a pattern in the first sixty seconds, and you could see, okay, well they're just going to repeat this for fifteen minutes, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, and Daniel Taylor seemed to poke Han in the eye a couple times, and uh, the second one, you know, the referee would not let her call her own timeout, which. It seems like referees are still on the fence whether you can do that or I'm not. Con- I'm confused now. How many time timeouts do I get? And Taylor jumped on her, hit her with a couple good shots as the referee, John Sharp, I believe it was, kept trying to tell her to fight back. Uh, afterwards, you know, we, we saw some replays that made it look an awful lot like Danielle Taylor got her fingers right up there in the eye. And yet when she came out after the fight in, we had got the quotes on the MMA junkie. Uh, and she had this to say, well, I knew I didn't. I knew I, I know I didn't poke her eye. Uh, but I waited. Once the ref gave me the green light, I went. I'm not going to stop. He said, go, so go. Green means go. It's a fight. I have to say, you know you didn't poke her eye, and yet we all saw you poke her eye. So, are you fucking kidding me with that? You fucking kidding me? Also, can we please just decide whether fighters can call a timeout when they get poked in the eye? Can we? Can we make a ruling on that? Three timeouts per half. 30-second timeouts? Because... You can't sit there and be like, why does she think she gets to call timeout? She should be protecting herself at all times. She got to call timeout earlier in the fight. People get to do it all the time. Make up our minds here. Well, Ben, social media teed me up for this one today that uh, Gabby Garcia at the next Ryzen FC event is going to fight a 52-year-old woman. 52-year-old Japanese politician. Who is referred to as a quote-unquote veteran in the articles about her. I'm not sure a veteran of... Of what? Of the foreign wars or uh, of MMA before we called it that? But Shinobu Kandori is down to fight Gabby Garcia at the next Ryzen event. Uh, I just want to read a couple of quotes from Gabby Garcia about this matchup. Uh, here she is talking to uh, Guillerme Cruz from MMA Fighting. She says, 
I found out about the fights, the fight moments before the press conference. I was ready for the press conference when my boss called and explained the reason why he wanted to do this fight. And I talked to my manager about it. I mean, I said yes because I understand my boss's side. I believe in what he's doing because he's a great promoter and I'm an employee. I will enter the ring to fight whoever they put in front of me. I was in a room and she was in a separate room. They announced me. I entered the press conference and they announced her. When I saw her, I was like, oh my. At the press conference, someone asked her if she was going to train hard, and she said she wouldn't because she can rely on Japanese technology. I didn't understand anything, Gabby Garcia laughs. Japan is really different, but I don't pick my opponents. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? <laughs> Have you seen the video of this? Yeah. The stare-down video where Shinobu Kandori looks, literally looks like one of the Golden Girls <laughs> standing next to Gabby Garcia. And then when Gabby Garcia kind of stares down and gets in her face a little bit, Looks like she's just kind of insulted and like the, the old lady at the supermarket who is just kind of trying to like bump her way to the front of the line and then realizes, oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to work here. Yeah. You know what? I don't think I've ever said this before, but Jesus, I hope this is fixed. <laughs> I hope that this is a fake fight. Otherwise, are you fucking kidding me? Or, or, uh... Sakuraba runs in at the last minute and jumps on Gabby Garcia's back and chokes her out. Yeah, like she couldn't take both of them. <laughs> okay. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, speaking of UFC Fight Night 101 trash <laughs> from Melbourne, Australia, we had to wait a long ass time for something halfway decent on this fight card. Just one decision after another, trying to lull you to sleep. And then finally, the middleweight main event between Robert Whitaker and Derek Brunson is just four minutes of straight fireworks. Yep. In part because it seemed like... Derek Brunson was in a hurry. Yeah, even they were tired of this shit, right? This event had been the trash compactor on the Death Star of UFC Fight Night events up until this point. What did we get? Eight consecutive decisions to start this thing out? Tie the record? Six and a half hours of fights? Uh, which is only cool if you were actually watching them in the middle of the afternoon in Melbourne, I assume. Uh, and maybe you got nothing to do the next day. So you can just show up and have a have an enormous can of Fosters and watch the fights from like noon until dinner time. Do you think the Australians get tired of people trying to get them to yell oi oi oi? Seemingly it... not. Seemingly not. Because uh, I get tired of it. But it, there was a fighter on here that that implored them to yell something else too, wasn't there? In his post fight interview, I can't remember who it was now, but uh, he did some strange call and response that seemed like only halfway successful. Yeah, I remember that. The way I remember all of this is 
as if in a fever dream. It's like a foggy, a thing that might have happened long ago. Just one amorphous decision that seemed to last for seven hours. Ben, I had been singing the praises of Derek Brunson on this show in the weeks leading up to this fight, talking about how maybe he was overrated. Or I mean, I'm sorry, criminally underrated, uh, that he only had that one loss to Yoel Romero in a fight that he had been winning until Yoel Romero exploded with crazy violence in the third round, as he is known to do after Derek Brunson got a little tired. Uh, this fight, I cannot explain. Aside from the fact that uh, Derek Brunson had a plane to catch uh, and needed to get home as soon as possible because he comes out in this bout against Robert Whitaker, in which Brunson was the slight favorite, according to the, you know, the people who were actually offering odds on this thing. And he gets into the exact style of fight that you would want to avoid if you are fighting Robert the Widowmaker Whitaker. Just come up with that right now? No, somebody sent that in. I can't remember who it was. But it's not bad. It's not too bad. It's better than the Reaper. Yeah, it seemed not only like it was an impatient style, but like uh, he just kind of forgot all the fundamentals and decided, you know what, I'm going to lunge at him face first, hands down, and just hope and see that that works out all right. And I couldn't tell if that was something where if, you know, one of the early shots that he got clipped with had affected his equilibrium to the point, equilibrium uh, to the point that he he was doing that on accident, or if that was just in his rush to get after Robert Whitaker, if he completely, you know, lost sight of protecting his own face. Yeah, it seemed like really early on there was a semblance of game plan here. Like it looked like Derek Brunson wanted to punch his way into takedown attempts against Robert Whitaker. Like maybe his plan was to be aggressive to get Whitaker moving backward and then shoot shoot for his legs because that's what he tried to do you know, the first couple few uh, wild exchanges in this fight uh, and Robert Whitaker, for the most part, warded off those takedowns attempts fairly easily. I'm always suspicious of those takedown percentage stats that they throw around on UFC broadcasts. And the reason that I wonder about their utility is that it frequently turns out that a dude like Robert Whitaker has the fourth best takedown defense percentage in UFC history, which makes you wonder... What are we talking about here? But then Robert Whitaker went out there and and showed off some like pretty impeccable takedown defense in this fight. And the one time that Derek Brunson did put him on the mat, he popped right back up. Uh, so maybe he does have the fourth best takedown defense in UFC history. I, I don't know. But I don't know if that frustrated Derek Brunson or if he did get clipped, as you said. Uh, and he seemed to recognize this at the post-fight press conference that he basically chucked any game plan, any technique, any anything, and just went out there and kind of led with his chin, which was the wrong strategy in this fight. Yeah, he did seem to acknowledge that he kind of just fucked up. And that's one, though, where it makes it hard to know what to do with this result. Because you can't take anything away uh, from Robert the Weeping Willow Whitaker, obviously. You know, the, he he went out there, he got the job done, he knocked him out. He, no, he, he did his job, and he looked pretty good doing it, too, yeah. you know? Uh, when he saw the opening for that finish, he was on point. And at the same time, I feel like Derek Brunson is better than that, and we didn't get the the full picture of what this fight could have been just because of the style he went out there with. Yeah, and I mean, at the same time, it was kind of goofy and not necessarily the fight that you would... You wouldn't show this fight to young up-and-coming kids and be like, fight like this. But like, 
after six and a half hours of fights, it was fun to watch this, right? Like this was. You were glad somebody led with her chin. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, you know, who else was glad? Robert Whitaker, since he picked up a cool hundred thousand dollars extra after the rare double fight night bonus, where he got performance of the night and fight of the night. But like after sitting through those eight decisions and like some kind of lackluster stuff, I will give Robert Whitaker and Derek Brunson their due for making me happy. Uh, at the end of this thing, uh, I wish I could say the same for Derek Brunson, but like he was obviously pretty bummed. You got to take the result, right? Robert Whitaker wins this, and and like certainly he looked pretty impressive. I also don't know how much you take away from Derek Brunson, except that clearly he has it in him to fight like this, which is weird. Uh, uh, maybe the the upside of this is that it's probably going to take the top half of the middleweight division a little bit of time to sort out exactly what's going on because we think Michael Bisping's going to fight Yoel Romero in the spring. Uh, Luke Rockhold and Jacare Souza are still kind of trying to get together. Uh, they're on again, off again rematch. You got Chris Weidman who just got his brain rattled by Romero at UFC 205. So you got the young vagabond. Yeah, I was just going to say if you're Robert Whitaker and you, you luck yourself into a fight against Gegard Mousasi or somebody like that, that's not too shabby uh, as a uh, not necessarily a consolation prize, but like a holding pattern until the middle of 2017, which is probably the earliest that we're going to be able to take applications for new number one contenders in the middleweight division. Yeah, that was one of the things I was wondering too, was if 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 Derek Brunson had won, would it have then seemed more urgent to move things along that the line was getting a little bit too long? And seeing Robert Whitaker come out on top, you know, he's 25. He's got a, uh, what now, a six fight win streak, but only in the last, you know, three or four has it started to get really serious. It does feel like he's got some time. He can, he can sit back a little bit and wait and see how these guys sort things out. Uh, I just wonder if we're all going to get so caught up looking at the top three or four of the middleweight division that, you know, guys like Robert Whitaker, Next thing you know, he's in a Max Holloway situation where he's won nine in a row and nobody knows what the hell to do with him. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And I think interesting, frankly, for both Robert Whitaker and Derek Brunson, regardless of who won or lost this fight, because is Anderson Silva going to want to fight a guy like Robert Whitaker and vice versa? Is, you know, Vitor Belfort going to want to fight Derek Brunson? Those seem like, you know, somewhat dangerous fights for the for the young dinosaurs of this division. Uh but those guys are still clogging up the top 10, right? Anderson Silva is still officially the number six ranked middleweight in the UFC. Vitor Belfort's still number nine. Uh, so, you know, there are some old dogs in this division still, uh, and guys who can look dangerous when they want to and then, and, but can't necessarily seemingly, uh, sustain it for the long term. And that's gonna, uh, I think create some, some weird matchup problem. Not necessarily, you know, a lack of opportunity, but like, I don't know, man. If you're Derek Brunson and you're looking around this division for who you fight, you would probably rather fight a Vitor Belfort than a Christoph Jotko. But like, who knows if the like more famous guys in this division are going to take that fight? Yeah, I don't think Vitor Belfort is sitting around right now saying, you know what, me and Derek Brunson, that's what the people want to see. Unfinished business. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I do think, though, that with Robert Whitaker coming out on top in this fight, it makes it more pressing than ever for us to figure out a nickname situation for him because the Reaper is just, come on, you, that might have been fine when, you know, you were some dude who was 9-1 fighting for cage fighting championships, but now, now you're moving up there in the UFC middleweight division, you need a serious nickname. Yeah, we got some decent uh, submissions, right? People, people were 
People went real hard on the let's make a pun out of Robert Whitaker's last name. Understandable. Which let's is, just get that out of our system, and then we can focus on what's left. But I'm, I don't know that I'm necessarily ready to say case closed. I don't necessarily think... No, I don't think we're there yet. We didn't get a uh, bricklayer out of this, or no. a sweet and sassy. One that as soon as your eye hits it, you're like, that's the one. So uh, we're still taking submissions. The contest to come up with a new nickname for Robert Whitaker and receive absolutely nothing in return except for co-main event podcast uh, legend status. It's still open. It's still out there. Yeah. Waiting for someone to grab the brass ring. And you will be shocked at how easy it is for your made-up nickname to show up on Wikipedia uh, and for people to think that it's real. Exactly. See, there's it's high stakes, man. It's a high stakes game. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. In the final of the Ultimate Fighter Season 24 Tournament of Champions. You, uh, are you going to tell me what the choices are? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, you've got Hiro Masa Oji Kubo taking on Tim Elliott. Are you fucking with me? No, that's actually the, uh, that's the real final. That's the one. I'm going to go with doesn't matter. Demetrius Johnson smokes either one of them. So this is an interesting thing that's been happening. Uh, Ultimate Fighter Season 24. Clearly, you and I have not watched uh, second one of this thing because why would you at this point? By all accounts, though, uh, this has been a good season of The Ultimate Fighter where they brought together a bunch of uh, champions from smaller MMA organizations, flyweight champions, they, they paired them up in a tournament, and the winner is going to fight the UFC flyweight champion, Demetrius Johnson. Uh, uh, the, uh, arguably the number one pound for pound fighter in the world dominated his division, uh, in an outstanding fashion since becoming champion. Uh, they're gonna fight on Fox Sports 1. So, an interesting wrinkle, I guess you could say, into the, Ultimate Fighter franchise, although at this point, I wonder if any wrinkle can really uh, revive the thing. Yeah, it's to me, it feels kind of like the those Twilight movies in that it people could tell me that they are good. Like, pe- even people whose opinion I trust could tell me that, okay, uh, number two or three or whatever, however many of those they did, this one is actually good. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to see it. At this point... There, I've made up my mind on it, and I'm not going to watch the Ultimate Fighter at this point because there's just I've been burned too many times on watching, hearing that okay, this time all oh, the fights are crazy on this one. This one is totally different. The format's totally changed, totally fresh. And I watched like 12 seasons of that. Now you're at season 24, and nope, I'm not doing it anymore. I've figured out a way to live with the Ultimate Fighter in my life, and that is. Hear about a little bit as it's going on and then wait until the finale uh, and wait until immediately thereafter. And you kind of just figure out who is worth paying attention to because it's not that many of them. That's just how it goes. Did uh, did we already figure this out? Because the, the Wikipedia bout sheet already has Demetrius Johnson's opponent listed. 
So did we already air this episode? Or, I, uh... I, no, I think it airs uh, this week, right? But I had heard that some various like TV guide kind of things had screwed up and went ahead and announced the winner. Well, there were, and earlier in this season, there was another bout of uh, controversy. Someone had spoiled the ending. Someone had reported the winner of this tournament. Uh, at, oh, no. And so that was a big, big deal because we wouldn't want uh, anyone to find out who wins the Ultimate Fighter tournament. Yeah. I guess. If all, if all the suspense is gone, then what are you watching for? House anyway, antics. if you are a person who has watched all of these episodes of The Ultimate Fighter, I'm not going to spoil it for you uh, just because I want you to be able to watch that last episode. If you are a person that really <laughs> wants this to, far, if you are a person who really wants to know and you want to go to Wikipedia and search around until you find this season of The Ultimate Fighter, which I just learned was not that easy, uh, you can <laughs> you can find out who Demetrius Johnson is going to fight this weekend. Uh, I don't think it's too many spoilers to say it's not a person that is going to beat Demetrius Johnson. <laughs> you know, I keep thinking of it whenever we watch one of these other uh, fight night cards and the announcers start talking about one of these dudes is like, oh, yeah, well, he did this on Tough China or he did this on Tough Latin America season three. And you realize, wait a minute, did these guys in the course of their research for calling this event actually have to sit down and watch Tough China. Some people do, man. Some people they have did, seen these things. That is commitment right there. That is immediate shit-eating wild man status right there. Well, they're getting paid, so it's a little different, but yeah. Is the UFC taking a tremendous risk here that we're not going to get into a uh, Matt, Sarah, George St. Pierre situation? I don't. Maybe that would be the best possible thing that could happen and inject true. a little life into the flyweight division because right now it feels like we always know what's going to happen. Demetrius Johnson is going to go out there and he's going to smoke some fool. He's going to remind us all that he is probably pound for pound the best fighter in the world and just skill-wise is way ahead of absolutely everybody in his division and for the most part, no one will care. Like, you know, the hundred, the 150 to 200,000 hardcore MMA fans that watch absolutely everything no matter what and really care about Demetrius Johnson, uh, they will just be reminded that the world is, you know, in order. Everything is as they thought it was. Demetrius Johnson is awesome and nobody can even come close to him. And still more people will know him as that guy who plays video games on the internet. I wonder if you're Demetrius Johnson, if you think about this as just free money or if you're, if there's part of you that it's like, come on, man. I got to fight the winner of the Tournament of Champions on the Ultimate Fighter? I hope that he thinks of it like Lawrence Taylor thought of crossing the picket line to go and just crush a bunch of scrubs in the NFL during a strike, where you think part of you thinks, well, I need the money. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, Demetrius Johnson's not out there making Conor McGregor money, so he probably could use that paycheck. And if it's an easy paycheck, you know, all, all the better. Also, there must be some small part of him, because we've seen that meanness come out in him in fights, that yeah. thinks like, you know what, I'm going to go over there and dance on this motherfucker's face just to prove to everyone what a terrible idea this was. It, this seems like the kind of thing that could piss Demetrius Johnson off, given that every time I've talked to him, I'm, you know, because we always talk about Demetrius Johnson as not a tremendous draw for the UFC and as a guy that they struggle to find places for uh, on fight cards. Every time I talk to him, I forget that, like, Demetrius Johnson is a fiery dude and, like, super competitive. I guess maybe this is an obvious statement, but, like, super competitive and, like, uh, will definitely put a chip on his shoulder and use it for motivation if he has to. And so I think this is a situation uh, where he would be able to do that. Like, they, you know, 
I have either cleaned out my division or perhaps they think so little of me as a drawing card that now I'm going to fight this dude from the reality show. Yeah, I, he's going to be the only champion of like the kind of new era that it has to end up headlining a damn Ultimate Fighter finale card. Yeah, and what do you if he does come up there and smoke smoke his opponent here? Like, what do you do with him after that? Uh, interestingly enough, Ben, the co-main event of this thing, one of the few times where the Ultimate Fighter coaches will actually collide for your viewing pleasure on free TV, Joseph Benavidez against Henry Cejudo. Uh, again, because I had not watched any of this season of The Ultimate Fighter, I didn't know that it seems like these two guys have a little uh, feud brewing. Oh, no, that uh, never happens. Potentially uh, for The Ultimate Fighter cameras that they were kind enough to recap for us in the middle of the night during uh, Fight Night 101. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Demetrius or uh, Joseph Benavides and Henry Cejudo, it's, uh, it's a not, a, not a bad little flyweight matchup right there. No, I'll watch that. Yeah. You'd think the... Uh, the winner of that thing is going to go back to the locker room and really, really hope and pray that Demetrius Johnson loses, right? <laughs> or wins. I don't know, because if Demetrius Johnson loses, do you have to have a rematch? And then the winner of Benavidez Cejudo kind of gets screwed? Or uh, or do you get to fight the, the tough guy that you just coached? Or maybe if Demetrius Johnson wins, that's when, and it turns out to be a lot of fun to watch Demetrius Johnson beat the hell out of somebody who uh, cannot even compete with him. Then maybe the UFC finally embraces our idea of having Demetrius Johnson fight every living man at 125 pounds, door to door. In which case, Sir Nigel might want to start brushing up on his takedown defense. Yeah, get well soon, Sir Nigel. Uh, this entire tough finale card has a real, oh yeah, that person vibe to it. Because you got, uh, not only do you have Benavidez Cejudo, uh, you have Jake Ellenberger versus Jorge Masvidal. You've got Sarah McMahon versus Alexis Davis. And then down on the featured prelim, also on Fox Sports 1, Gray Maynard doing the damn thing against, against Ryan, Ryan Hall, Hall. Yeah. Uh, at Featherweight. How about that? So did you know Gray Maynard was still doing the damn thing? You know, I guess if you had just buttonholed me and said, hey, is Gray Maynard doing the damn thing? Yes or no? If we were going to play retired or not retired? Yeah, I think I, I think I would have said yes, he's still doing the damn thing, but I would not have sounded confident. He has not fought since April 2015. Uh, in, then he made his, uh, flyweight debut, debut back in July, beat Fernando Bruno. So, uh, on the heels of what was it? Uh, four straight losses there from 2013 to 2015. Now he's, uh, starting to build himself back up a little bit here. Well, and for those people who are feeling like, man, doesn't it seem like in the wake of UFC 205, we got a lot of kind of mediocre fight cards rolling out one after the other and losing a lot of that that momentum. Don't worry, because next weekend we roll back in there with UFC Fight Night 102 from Albany with Derek Lewis versus that other guy, Shamil Abdurakimov. You know that one that you've been super excited about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Shamil Abara fan of that guy. Yeah, then it's a shot right in the arm. All right. Back at it. Are you ready to do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff this week? Well, Chad, I wrote a thing about it on MMA Junkie. You might have seen there was a report from uh, Sports Business Journal out today about uh, basically what the UFC is looking to do when it goes to sign a new TV rights deal. The, the current one with the Fox Sports expires in 2018. We had kind of written about in that investor presentation that the UFC felt like it was poised for several reasons to see a big increase in its rights fees just because 
there aren't a whole lot of sports properties up for grabs until about 2021. So UFC's positioned pretty well to, to get a big payday out of that. And according to this report from uh, Sports Business Journal, the payday they're hoping to get is about $450 million a year, which is about three times what they're getting this year. Um, the more interesting part is that one of the things that they're thinking about doing under the new ownership when they sign this new deal, whether it's with Fox Sports or somebody else, is for the first time basically in forever since the Zufa era took over, Seeding control of the production, having the actual TV partner do the production of the UFC shows, um, which also means absorbing that cost on their part. But, you know, not having the UFC production for the first time be a UFC product, really. Hmm. So interesting. I'm just saying we may have seen the last bald man shout times once we hit 2018. You may be looking at a completely different UFC product. And I'm also just saying it may be about damn time to start treating this thing like it's just a regular sport and we don't have the people who run it tell us all about it. Wow, you really put a positive spin on that there at the end. I like what you're saying. I'm just saying. I like what you're just saying. Ben, uh, this week I'm just saying everybody who listens to the co-main event podcast is familiar with the game where you read me a list of undercard fighters and I have to tell you if it's real or made up. Yeah, I like that game. I want to put a new spin on it considering that we just rolled out of UFC Fight Night 101 from Australia where local products like Robert Whitaker and Jake Matthews and Dan Kelly were all on the card. Uh, we know that the UFC likes to bring in some local talent here and there to pop the, uh, the local fan base to get people in the door. Uh-huh. I'm going to read you a list of fighters from the undercard of an upcoming UFC event. And I want you to tell me just where you think it might be, the vibe, the general vibe that you're getting. And my name in country or city or whatever you want. I'm oh, leaving that up to you. Okay. Keeping it a little loosey. I, I like how this here. is f- kind of free for right, here, here are the names. Are you ready? Damien Grabowski. Okay. Victor Pesta. Okay. Bohan Mihalovic. All right. Joaquin Christensen. Okay. And Dmitry Smolyakov. All right. I'm going to say Poland. Get excited, Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) Fans will flock to the Talking Stick Resort Arena because on Sunday, January 15th, 2017, these are the men who will fight in support of your main event, pitting Yair Rodriguez against BJ Penn. Are we sure that Phoenix, Arizona is not a neighborhood in Warsaw? Phoenix, Arizona goes nuts for Dmitry Smolyakov. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you have questions, comments, concerns you want to air to us for future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That gets you in touch with us. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at the Ultimate Fighter live finale and look ahead to that other fight night card that is that Ben told you about a minute ago. And That's totally happening. Just going to really happen. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Okay, I get it. Maybe uh, maybe Phoenix is one of those places where there's a big Polish neighborhood. That right? could be. Big Polish presence. Maybe this is right in the middle of Little Poland. Yeah, in Phoenix. Down there in Phoenix. Yeah. They come for the weather and the coyotes. Right?